So this morning I titled this lecture, Jesus the First Soil Scientist. Um, what is soil is the main topic. And the reason why I said Jesus the First Soil Scientist is because some of you may be familiar with the, uh, uh, some of the visions that Ellen White received from, uh, essentially from Jesus, explaining to her how she should plant fruit trees and explaining to her uh, what soils were best for vegetable production. And some of the things that uh, a lot of us uh, in the agricultural community still don't understand is how the mineralogy in soils really dictates the nutrient capacity of the crops that are going to be grown in that soil. There is an industry that understands this very well, and the industry that understands this is the, uh, the uh, vineyard industries, unfortunately. It's the industries that take those fruits that are so delicious and convert them into alcohols through fermentation and sell it to you at $40 a bottle. Those industries make a lot of money, and in those industries is where the most talent in the agricultural industry goes, uh, unfortunately. But um, you can uh, turn to, I believe it's Ministry of Healing, and read some statements concerning... Um, uh, some of the work that Satan would really seek to do in the last days and taking the fruit and the uh, other things in the land and actually fermenting it and increasing the uh, consumption of alcoholic and intoxicating beverages in the uh, world in the last days. So I believe uh, a lot of those things, but I want to really focus on what is soil and Jesus, the first soil scientist. So to start, I'd like to show you this slide right here. We are headed for the perfect storm, and this is not something that I made up. This is something that was uh, uh, shared to me at the university. And what this is is that today we have over 7 billion. We're rapidly approaching 8 billion souls on this planet. There's a lot of mouths to feed. There's a lot of hungry people everywhere. Uh, 30% of, uh, in, of the water in the... There's going to be a 30% increase in water demand by 2030. Uh, and this was going from 2015 standards, so we're expected to have an increase in water supply. Where does our water come from? It comes from soils. We have a 50% increase in food demand by 2030, and where does the food come from? It comes from our soils. Uh, we have 50% increase in energy demand, and where does the majority of our energy come from? It comes from soils. So again, when we start considering soils, we see that the majority of our consumption and our use comes from soil. So we've got to ask the question, what is soil? Before I start, I wanted to take a couple, I uh, wanted to show a few things here. First off, this is 1500s, roughly, about five, over 500 years ago. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci made a quote. We know more about the movement of celestial bodies than about the soil underfoot. Here we are 500 years later, and that statement remains the same. With over 99% of the uh, microbiology in soils has yet to be studied in any way scientifically. We've only studied less than half a percent. All our antibiotics came from organisms in the soil. Consider that. Another uh, man you may know, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1940s during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression made this statement. A nation that destroys its soils destroys itself. And this is very interesting because we have almost entirely destroyed the land of milk and honey that the Lord has given to those who were seeking the persecution, to avoid persecution. Uh, another statement by Louis Brumfeld. Some of you may know who he is. He was a, uh, uh, a man that was very instrumental in uh, starting the organic movement. He said, soil is the fundamental and ultimate basis of wealth of every nation. When we look at gross domestic product of nations, what makes nations most profitable is its agricultural production. So taking that into consideration, we're going to start with what is soil? We're going to start with master horizons. A lot of folks don't know when I say horizons what that means. So when we look at horizons, you have multiple horizons. Not every soil has every single one of these horizons, but the first horizon that you would see is, is mostly 
is the O horizon. This is the surface horizon made of organic matter. And this horizon is usually only attributed to jungles and forests, where you have a lot of litter decay on the surface of the soil. Uh, in agroecosystems, you will not usually find this, um, with the exception of some, you know, your mulches and things that you would throw on top, but we don't usually call that the O horizon because that is actually uh, uh, due to human uh, enrichment. Uh, then there's the A horizon. This is essentially what most people call topsoil. This surface horizon is a mixture of the minerals that are the parent material that has mineralized in that soil um, and also the organic matter. It's usually high in organic matter, but not all soils are high, have an A horizon that is high in organic matter. But you, and usually when you see that, what you're essentially saying is that you don't have an A horizon. So in the Midwest, where the Corn Belt, this was an area of the, of the country that had very high organic matter. It's referred to as a, a, a mollic epipedon or a mollusol because that means it's high in organic matter. We have, uh, with over the hundred, last 100 to 150 years, we have taken our topsoil from about three feet or so down to about a foot in some places. We have eroded significantly that topsoil, and that land is never going to produce the way it used to produce. Uh, that's rather unfortunate because that's where some of our highest production used to come from. Uh, then we have the E horizon, which is the subsurface horizon. It's light in color due to leaching. What this is is a, a horizon that usually is associated uh, with uh, leaching of nutrients from the upper horizons down to the lower horizons. And we call that alluviation. And this is usually seen in areas of high precipitation. So if you're in deserts and uh, other arid climates, you won't see this. But you sometimes see this in uh, the southeast, particularly where high rainfalls in the tropical regions. And, of course, this is uh, represented as white in the screen because you usually see this white coloration to soils when you start digging a pit and looking at that. Then there's the B horizon. This is the subsurface horizon. This is where you oftentimes find clay accumulation. When clay is very small, it moves through the soil horizons and it goes down uh, to the lower horizons. And this is referred to as clay accumulation or alluviational processes. And then beneath that is the substratum, which is the least weathered and deepest of all the soil horizons. And this is usually made up of uh, fractured parent material, which is, in other words, fractured bedrock. So usually this is pretty deep, but in some cases it's not, depending on soils. Uh, some soils are very weathered, and, that you, and you won't experience that. This is a cutaway image of what that would look like. Uh, not, again, not every soil has all five horizons. Most soils don't have an O horizon, and a lot of soils have lost their A horizon. Uh, in most agroecosystems, we have completely destroyed the A horizon due to uh, uh, erroneous agricultural practices, particularly the last couple hundred years. And then, of course, you see the B horizon, the C horizon, and you get down to bedrock. Um, this is, gives you a, a nice idea of what that looks like. So I'm going to shift gears here. We're going to go mostly to the A horizon. We're going to start looking at um, what is this surface of the soil. So you've probably seen this, maybe some of you have seen this image before, but uh, what we have here is that you have usually on average a 50% pore space in any given soil. It doesn't matter how, how good or bad or unhealthy or that soil may be, uh, it averages 50% pore space. Uh, what, that, or what is in that pore space is going to be a mixture of air and water, and that's what usually dictates uh, some of the health of that soil. The other 50% of the soil is, uh, des you would desire to have a 45% a roughly of minerals, uh, which would eventually come from weathered bedrock, and 5% organic matter. Now, that 5% organic matter may seem insignificant in the overall pie chart here because we're talking about 95% of the soil is consumed with air, water, and minerals. 
The other 5% is organic matter. However, that 5% is the most important of the entire pie chart you see here. The soil and air component, I'm going to start with the soil. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to start with the air, which I see as, um, well, well, I don't think it's necessarily the least important, but it usually gets the least attention. Um, high spatial variability and high temperature variability, high moisture content, usually about 100% in this area, humidity. Uh, high CO2 content and low oxygen content. Uh, you have a lot of gas exchange here, which, which uh, regulates metabolic processes and microbial activity. You really want to take into consideration your mois soil moisture and your, air, uh, your percent air in your soils when you start considering what metabolic processes are happening there. Soil water component. The water component is relatively important because this is where uh, what you would, most of us scientists would refer to as uh, the soil solution. And what this is, is all the mineralogy um, and any exudates from the plants and, and microorganisms that goes into the soil solution ultimately will go into the plants when the plant transpires and it moves these nutrients through the plant. Uh, what that consists of is your nutrition. What, what, is, what is essentially the plant sap? I spoke about that yesterday. That's the health of that plant. We really want to focus on making very healthy soil solution, which is a, a mixture of different nutrients. The mineral component is uh, makes up less than 50% of the volume of the soil. Varies in chemical composition and uh, contains particles, several size ranges uh, from clay, silt, or, or, uh, or uh, sand, and um, also rocks and other things that may, may be in there. Contains, uh, there's the mineralogy that is in there is actually comes from your parent material. So if you want an understanding of what, uh, new, what minerals are going to be in your soil, for example, calcium, potassium, uh, etc. You need to understand what is your parent material. Is it basalt? Is it meccas? Is it potassium feldspars? Uh, what is it? When you understand what the mineralogy of that parent material is, then you can guess as to what nutrients are going to weather and, and be in excess in your soil. And you're going to constantly have to be working to manage those. Now we're going to get into organic matter. This is a small portion, but... Um, uh, Weight-wise, but it's very important. It's made up of uh, partially decomposed plant matter, animal and microbial residues, plus living organisms, and uh, is really where a lot of the, uh, I guess you could say a lot of the magic happens in, in the organic matter. This is an image of the United States of the uh, of percent organic, well, this is actually not per showing percent, but it is showing organic matter in areas where it's low, areas where it's high. So you can look at um, where you're from. We're, everybody here is from all over the world, but, uh, or all over the country at least, and some of you are coming from outside of the United States. But you look at the United States and you see Iowa and uh, Minnesota up there, how dark they are. Uh, it used to be that that, was, that, that that probably still is, for the most part, high organic matter. The Pacific Northwest is the same way. It doesn't come up quite as dark on the uh, projection here as it does on the computer, but you see that those are the areas with high organic matters. You start looking at the soils down south, and you see in the particularly, well, we call it the south, but it's really the southeast when you look at it at a map. You notice that there's very little organic matter there. Um, these are areas where uh, temperatures usually are uh, above freezing most of the winter, and uh, rainfall is high, so what you see is a lot of leaching of nutrients coming out of these soil profiles. You look to the northeast, and the northeast, what we would call now uh, New England, uh, used to be very high in organic matter, and uh, a lot of those forests used to produce very well, but uh, with uh, we're going on 400 years now of plowing these, so these fields, uh, 
we've burned up most of that organic matter. It's not there anymore. Uh, and we are essentially doing, or we have already done to New England what we're doing to the Midwest. Uh, when we look to the Pacific Northwest, uh, you see some real uh, rich areas in the coastal Pacific Northwest, but as you move inland, uh, you, come with, you, you end up having a lot of the same problems that you have in the southwest, except that the ground freezes, and that slows down the metabolic processes of organic matter, so you have some buildup there. When you look at California in the southwest, there's practically nothing out there. <laughs> so growing in those soils are probably the toughest as far as organic matter is concerned. So functions of organic matter, uh, it receives a lot of respect. Uh, you'll hear over and over and over again when you go to a lot of different classes from the USDA, from uh, your university extensions, they talk a lot about organic matter. When you go to uh, ATRA or SHARE or any of the uh, uh, USDA organic uh, sponsored uh, classes or any, uh, well, ATRA is actually not USDA sponsored, it's independent. But when they hold their training classes, they talk a lot about organic matter. When you consider some of the first, like Rodell and um, uh, who was the other one, Steiner and... Uh, uh, many of the early uh, advocates for organic agriculture, their big, uh, the, the reason why it was called organic is because they turned to organic matter uh, and they paid organic matter a lot of attention. That's where the word organic came from and that's how you ended up with organic agriculture. Uh, organic, or, organic matter in the soil really is important. It glues together those soil particles. It controls soil erosion. Uh, it, it helps uh, control the loss of moisture. It helps to uh, regulate different uh, biological processes. It, it is essentially where the majority of your nutrients are coming from, from your plants. It's, it's the decay of last year's crop that is making nutrients available to this year's crop. Uh, a lot of food and energy for soil. Of course, it's food and energy for soil organisms as well as the plants that are in that soil. I'm going to talk a little bit now about uh, relative uh, soil particle sizes. Now, a lot of you have, have uh, heard these terms of my farm or my garden or, or, or et cetera is a, is a clay soil or is a loam soil or is a sandy soil or maybe it's a silt loam or a clay loam. And, and you hear these words kind of thrown around, so I'm going to try to define what those are for you here. And uh, so before I go there, the first thing I want to do is get you to understand the difference between sand, silt, and clay on a dimensional aspect. So we're looking at, to the left, you have just a piece of gravel a small pea gravel, it's about two millimeters in size. I think most of you can envision in your, hand, in your head what a, a, a pea gravel would look like. Silt is uh, half that much. I'm sorry, sand is half that much. Silt is just a dot on that thing. <laughs> you can barely even see it. And clay, it's invisible to the naked eye. You would need to see it with a microscope to see that. So we can see how Clay is so much smaller than silt and sand and gravel. And, but clay is the, not the most, but probably the second most important aspect because it is responsible for cation exchange capacity, uh, as well as organic matter. Organic matter has humus in it, and humus is usually, the humus fraction of your soil is usually, has a higher percentage of the, or responsible for the higher percentage of cation exchange capacity in your soil than the clay that's in your soil. So when you're working with sandy soils, that have very low exchange capacity. As you, can, as you can see, the sand is much larger than the clay. It does not have the capacity to hold those cations in your soil. Uh, you really need to start thinking about how you're going to manage your organic matter to increase the humus content in that soil so that you can increase the cation exchange capacity of that soil, which essentially is the nutrient holding capacity of your soil. 
So when you're dealing with sandy soils, you really got to give it some more respect. Now, this is what I was talking about here. Somebody says, I got a silt loam. What does that mean? Or you read uh, online, maybe you'll go to Web Soil Survey and you'll pull up a report on your farm or your, or your garden or your particular piece of property that you have. And you want to understand when it says, uh, this soil is a silt loam. What does that mean? Well, if we look at this, uh, this triangular chart here on the left, we have the percent clay. On the right, you have percent silt. And on the bottom, you have percent sand. This, is, this, this uh, chart here is what, uh, what is used in the, in the soil science community to classify soils as silt uh, as, uh, under these classification categories. So if your soil was taken and you were, somehow you tested it in a laboratory and they come back and they tell you, well, you have 40% uh, clay and you have, I'm sorry, we'll just say 20% uh, clay and you're 80% silt and 20% sand, what type of soil do you have? You would use this chart to figure that out. It seems complicated at first, but I'll explain. So on the left, you would say you're 20% clay, so you're somewhere on this bar right here. On the right, you're 80% silt, so you'd be somewhere over here on this bar. While on this side down here at the bottom, you're 20% sand, so you would be using this uh, line right here. Where all three of those line meet, where all three of those lines meet, is what your soil would be. So if you're 20% clay, 80% silt, you would be silt loam. If you were 20% clay, and we'll say 60% silt, that would put you here, which means you have to be 20% sand. You're still a silt loam. You understand? Now, if you were 40% clay up here, and we were 10% silt way up on the top here, where those two lines meet, would put you right here into a sandy clay. Because you would have to be 50% sand. So you'd be a sandy clay loam or a sandy clay soil. So you can figure this out. And uh, if you know what your soil is, if it tells you it's a clay loam, uh, you can figure out usually more or less how much clay, how much silt, and how much sand is in your soil. Now, if I, I hope that you got a good uh, visual vision of what I mean by that, because this next image is what, where it really gets to being important. Now, we're looking at sand, sandy loam, loam, silt loam, clay loam, and clay. Why is this important? Well, a lot of folks think that clay soils are heavy. A lot of farmers will tell you clay soils are heavy, but really clay is the lightest of all the three. The reason why it feels heavy is because clay soils absorb and, have, and, uh, and absorb a lot of water due to the forces of adhesion. They will hold that water, but they won't make it plant available. So when you look at this chart, what you see is the top is is field capacity. And what field capacity is, is a soil's capacity to hold, or a soil's maximum capacity to hold water. In other words, is how much water can you put in your field until it starts to run off or leach. The wilting coefficient is the point where the water is so strongly bonded onto, the, onto that soil that it is not available to plants. That's why it's called wilting. It's the point where your plants start to wilt. So when we look at clay, we see at the top that it has that it can hold quite a bit of moisture. But when we look at silt loam, we see the same thing. But when we go down to sand, you see that it hardly holds any moisture at all. And that's something that you could probably easily visualize because if you've ever grown in the sandy soils or try to irrigate sandy soils, you notice how the water just goes straight to the bottom. Now, the important thing is if you wanted to guess, okay, what is the best soil 
if you just wanted to guess, what type of soil should, uh, should you be looking for? You would think, well, I want to look for the soil that would have the maximum amount of, of uh, moisture retention. In other words, how much will it hold without it leaching, uh, yet still making it maximum amount available for plants? And what you would have to see is the difference between the wilting coefficient and field capacity. And wherever that is, is where your maximum water availability would be. And of course, it would be somewhere in this area right here, a mixture of silt loam or loam. So this is why oftentimes you find folks saying you really want to grow a certain crop in a loam or a silt loam, et cetera, et cetera, or they view those soils as being uh, the better soil to work with. But that doesn't mean that you can't pull good crops out of other soils. But this is where that theory comes from, and it helps you to understand. Also, I'd like to share with you that the, this is a, on the left side here. This is the soil water content based off of percentages. It's right, it's, it varies from in this chart. You'd have to stare at this chart and look at it, but it, it varies. So water potential on plant available water. The definition, water in soil held at a soil water potential between negative 10 kilopascals and negative 1,500 kilopascals. It is within this range that moisture can move through plants. When we look at this chart, if you go at negative 10 kilopascals, if you go above this, that means that you have exceeded field capacity. You've put too much moisture down. That moisture will eventually leave through gravity. When you hit the wilting coefficient, which is at negative 1,500 kilopascals, that's the point where your plants start to wilt. So this is a scientific definition of how water moves through and what forces uh, are associated with that. When you get down to negative 3,100, you, uh, you start getting to hydroscopic, which means that you start to actually absorb moisture out of the air. Um, so, going back to the image that I had over here previously, with that understanding that information helps you to understand when soils are actually uh, going to provide sufficient water to your crops and how these forces are associated with that. So this is organic matter really helps to manage that, to buffer those capacities by holding that moisture in, in, in the soil. Now this is a chart showing you, uh, on average, the cation exchange capacity of various different soils. So I, I know that a few of you are unfamiliar with what cation exchange capacity is. I'll, I'll, I'll share that in a minute, but uh, we're going to start here by looking at the sandy soils. And we see that uh, sandy soils are usually somewhere around 5 milliequivalents per uh, 100 grams of soil. And uh, sandy loams can be about 8. Loams can be maybe... 12, per, uh, uh, 12 uh, silt loams can be as high as 20. Clay and clay loams can be as high as 30 or 35. But when we look at real high organic soils, now this example here is not talking about soils that you might think are high in organic matter, but it's talking about histosols. These are soils with 40% or 50% organic matter, which is a lot of organic matter, a lot of humus. And those are the soils where you'll see exchange capacities of 75. And that's a huge number. Uh, usually in waterlogged areas like Alaska, where, 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 um, where um, peat moss is mined or harvested. This is an example of water moving through the soil. Um, we're looking at a sandy loam and a clay loam. Both of them are flood irrigated. How does that water move through the soil profile? This helps you to understand what your irrigation is doing. When you have a sandy loam soil, as you see on the left, uh, the depth in centimeters after 24 hours of an irrigation interval that moisture would move from the very top all the way to the bottom. Well, 
but you notice that your horizontal movement is just a few just a few centimeters. I think we're looking at maximum of 30 centimeters from your irrigation furrow. It's not very far. That's how quickly water moves through a sandy soil. When you look at a clay soil, it takes 48 hours to reach the same depth after an irrigation interval. And it's going to take more water to do it. 24 hours, you're half that depth, about 70 or, well, depending on this graph was one particular study that was done, but I guess we could average around 80 centimeters. Um, but the interesting thing is, look at the difference in the horizontal moisture movement. Significant difference between a, a clay loam and a sandy loam. And when you add compaction to a sandy, a sandy soil, a sandy soil can be compacted. You, uh, you end up getting more runoff and you don't get that moisture moving down. While in a clay soil, you'll usually get that moisture moving down. You can compact it more, but or again, organic matter is what helps to really prevent compaction. And it would take a sandy soil like that and change its profile closely to, uh, closer to a clay loam. Now, folks, I, most people don't know what clay looks like, so I had to throw this image up there. This is an electron microscope image of clay. You're looking at this clay. These gaps in between these clays are about uh, one to two angstroms, which means one, uh, about 20 nanometers. Very tiny. Very, very tiny particles. These particles in complete size uh, distance from here to here would probably be as much as about 100 nanometers, maybe uh, 200 nanometers, depending on what type of clay it is. So these things are very, very small. They're made of octahedral and tetrahedral sheets. And what gives them a charge is not just their size, but the fact that they have different isomorphic substitution, different substances that are in there that change the charges of these clays. And what you end up seeing is in between these plates, you'll have actual elements, not molecules, but elements of cations that bond to it. And that's what holds nutrients in the soil for you. So clay provides that, silt and sand do not. But humus also does that. Here's a, oh, this is 100,000 times magnification. So this is another image of, uh, of sand. Sand is 0 0.05 to, 20, uh, to, to 2 millimeters in size. Silt is 0.002 to 0.05 millimeters in size. And clay is less than 0.002 millimeters. So that's two, that's two uh, micrometers. So it's very tiny, and it usually feels sticky. It, it, when you have dry clay in your hand and, you, and, you, and you're handling it, it feels almost like talcum powder or something real fine like that. It's very, very fine. So this is cation retention of organic matter. So organic matter, the reason why you just see this scribble on there and it's not something fixed like you see with the, with the clay colloids is because organic matter comes and humus comes in so many different shapes that there really is no, no, no uh, actual uh, uh, standard image for it. Every single one is going to look differently because it's just broken down uh, carbon from uh, plant tissues and other organisms that used to be working now. Clay or organic matter oftentimes is, is labeled as having a variable charge. And the reason why is um, mostly in the semantics of the literature. But essentially, clay, or I'm sorry, humus, uh, which is what we're looking at here, uh, will oftentimes have a very low uh, exchange capacity in acid soils and a very high exchange capacity in uh, neutral or uh, alkalinic soils. And I don't, I, I struggle with this because I really, I see it more like, um, it's really more the base saturation of hydrogen, if you understand what I mean. But if you don't, um, that's okay. So this is an a image, a, 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 I guess a 
artist's image of what clay would look like and what nutrients it would hold. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, ammonium, sodium, and copper, and other cations would easily bond to these clay colloids. And this is how the plants can actually exchange nutrients between the roots and the soils. Aluminum and hydrogen can also bond on there, but they're actually referred to aluminum, even though it's a positive charge, and hydrogen, well, hydrogen is pH because you're looking at your concentration of hydrogen, but aluminum, you would think, is more of a cation. However, aluminum is given a lot of respect uh, when it comes to acid soils because aluminum is a very strong a very small molecule with a, with a plus three charge. And what that does is that it bonds uh, water to it so tightly that it'll actually pull the hydrogen off of it. It'll hold on to the hydroxide and add hydrogen which is acidity, to your soils. So when you have a lot of aluminum in your soils, you tend to drive up your, 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 or drive down your pH, and then you have to, and it, it gives soil uh, what is called a buffering capacity. And you have to put enough calcium or carbonate down in, the, in your soils to actually overcome the effect of aluminum. And what you're trying to do is push aluminum out of the soil profile. And it's why aluminum is uh, referred to as an acid cation, even though it's a three plus charge. So this is a, an example of the strength of absorption. This is um, how cations are held, how strongly they're held to clay colloids. It's really more about how strong does water actually bond to these uh, molecules because water will bond to sodium or potassium with a, a stronger uh, strength of these are polar bonds uh, than it will calcium or magnesium. And because of that, uh, Sodium and potassium will leach from your soil profile much more quickly than uh, calcium or magnesium or aluminum. And this is why sodium can be a very, very difficult uh, nutrient to manage in uh, arid environments and why a lot of soils are seen as uh, 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 sodic soils or saline soils because you can't move these nutrients through, this, through the soil profile. You need a lot of water to get them out of there. Um, so hydrogen is usually the strongest bond in aluminum, then calcium, magnesium, and then uh, ammonium and potassium are relatively equal, and then sodium is at the last. So the sodium is always going to be the, last, uh, the first one to get knocked off. So when you come into your soil and you make these huge applications of limestone, whether it be dolmitic or calcitic limestone, you're going to be knocking sodium and potassium out first. You're going to push those guys out first. You always do. Uh, this is why when you put these nutrients down, you can usually uh, knock these uh, sodium and calcium out, and you have to end up coming back and putting these things back down again. So if you, sometimes you may have heard, if you, if you make big applications, you've got to come back and add the potassium and the sodium and other things. And this is why. Uh, this is an example of cation exchange capacity balancing. This is just one that I pulled up. Uh, there's, you know, some folks like different ratios, but... Uh, Essentially, this is the ratio that folks like to be uh, on those colloids. So when they talk about balancing the nutrients on your colloid, what they're saying is that you should, you know, all the nutrients on there or all the exchange sites should be, you know, 60% or so calcium, uh, 10 to 20% magnesium, 4% potassium, 2% sodium, and et cetera, et cetera. I just put that up there for uh, those that are downloading these images from uh, the, the website online. I spoke yesterday about the soil food web. Some of you may have heard that. Uh, another thing that you find in the soil is an awful lot of organisms. There's all kinds of bugs and creepy crawlies and bacteria, protozoas, and everything you can think of is in that soil. And we, not, we may not be able to see them, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. This is another image of the soil food web, and uh, essentially this is the food chain in the soil, who eats what and who gets eaten by what, is essentially all this really is. All right, so this is uh, one square meter of soil. So what is soil? I wanted to share with you what is in one square meter of soil about six inches deep. So on average, we'll say it has one vertebrate. That means one bird or one squirrel or something of that nature. 
and then you have about 100 snails and slugs, 3,000 potworms and earthworms. Uh, you're going to have about 5,000 insects, myropods, spiders, and duoplons. You're going to have about 10,000 rotifers and tardigrades, 50,000 springtails, 100,000 mites, 5 million nematodes, 10 billion protozoa, and 10,000 trillion bacterial and actomycete organisms in that one square meter of soil. That's an awful lot of life in that soil. So when you're going in there and disturbing and moving things around, you've got to think about how much is really in there. It's not just a piece of dirt. <laughs> There's a lot going on in, in that soil. This is mycorrhizae. Um, I've showed this image to some of you. You've seen this. You've got endo and ectomycorrhizae. These organisms, this is a fungal organism. Um, and these organisms are responsible mostly for mining, going out and getting a lot of these nutrients out of some of these uh, minerals that are in your soil, the parent material that is there that's weathering, and making them available to the microorganisms and plant roots. Uh, this is an example of what, uh, how these organisms work. This is uh, ectomycorrhizae uh, excreting enzymes, which will weather away organic phosphorus, making that phosphorus available, and ammonium uh, peptides available for, uh, the, in this example, the tree that's being grown. And this is an image that I pulled up out of a forest floor. I shared this yesterday. Mycorrhizae in the forest will actually, it's actually a communication network for the entire forest. Every single plant is usually connected to fungus. Fungus organisms are huge. They're not small. They're not tiny. They go all over the place. They got roots and hyphae. I'm sorry, they got hyphae that go, extend into all sorts of regions. And when you walk through a forest floor and you see mushrooms coming up, those are the reproductive organs of a fungus. Those are different funguses that have decided to reproduce sexually. And then in the mushroom is nothing but a bunch of spores, fungal spores. Uh, so that's what mushrooms are. And uh, fungus will actually form uh, symbiotic relationships with all the roots in a forest, and they will be able to exchange nutrients within different trees, as well as taking nutrients out of different parent material, the rock that you often find in forest, making it available to the plants. And they also exchange different, uh, uh, they send different signals to different enzymes, informing them when different things are happening, where different pests are attacking them. It's really, com it's really uh, complex what's going on in, in a forest and how the fungal network actually communicates with these trees. And you can have some of the stuff going on in your orchard if you can manage them right. This is, I'm going to get into bacteria a little bit. I should have probably put this one first. Bacteria uh, are also capable of fixing nitrogen and metabolizing nutrients. Some fungal organisms can do it, but mostly bacteria, uh, the... Uh, the genus of uh, Rhizobium uh, and Frankia and um, Azotobacter are the ones that receive the most respect for fixing nitrogen with their legumes. In this particular example, we're looking at bacteria by the root hairs. Uh, so you have a tremendous amount of bacteria that is actually associated with your roots. And that bacteria is essentially what is digesting the food for your crops. Uh, and you also have some bacteria that will uh, form nodules on the roots of, uh, example here, this is a clover nodulated with uh, Rhizobium. And what you have here, these what look like little tumors or deformities, these are all nodules that are caused by rhizobium, which fix nitrogen. That's how you get nitrogen fixation from your legumes. Uh, this um, is oftentimes uh, very misunderstood, or there's a lot of mystery behind it by some folks, but really, when these organisms are working, it has been for the most part understood that they are providing nitrogen for the species that they are, they are actually connected with. But recent studies have shown that, uh, in this example, we have a grass here, which I believe was ryegrass, interplanted with clover. And uh, it was discovered that the, when they did trials, that the, uh, that the uh, uh, ryegrass was actually benefiting and had an saw an increase of nitrogen in its plant tissues when planted together with clover. 
So it is believed that it can actually, you know, these organisms, even though they're getting their, their photosynthates from the clover, they're actually producing nitri nitrates that are made available to the, uh, to, to the grasses, which don't fix nitrogen. So when we start looking at the soil, we see so many different varieties. I, I really think of the Psalms 8, 3 through 9, and I, and I think of when he says, I considered the heavens. I like to replace that when I consider the soils <laughs> and the work of thy fingers and the moon and the stars and everything that I find inside of there. What is man that God is mindful of us? Everything that is in that soil, like Leonardo da Vinci was saying, is so complicated and is so, it's just so out of this world that I don't see how it could have possibly come from evolutionary processes. This had to have come from a, a, a designer, a creator. It is too complex, and the majority of these processes are not even understood by the scientific community. And oftentimes they're intentionally not studied because they just don't know where to begin. We have, like I said, we have studied less than 1% of the organisms in the soil. And then many of you have heard Ellen White's planting method, or maybe you've heard about it and you don't know much about it. Some of you have gone to some of the classes that, uh, uh, I forget the gentleman that holds those classes, but uh, this is an image from uh, Herbert Clarence White. He, that was the grandson of Ellen White. And this image he put together describing what, what he believed was his interpretation of what Ellen White was shown for uh, tree planting. And what's very interesting is I just walked through and I talked with, to you and I gave you vague understanding of bacterial organisms in the soil, of fungal organisms in the soil, and of other insects and arthropods that go through the soil and uh, work through these soils and cause different biological processes. I didn't really share with you a whole lot about how, oh yes I did talk about mycorrhizae and how it actually works with uh, the rocks and weathering, but I thought that, that it was very impressive when I looked at this and I said, you know, the person that came up with this was a woman that had a third grade education. And yet, and yet here we are in 2017, and we still don't understand a lot of these processes. But the reason why I said Jesus was the first soil scientist is because it was Jesus that not only created this earth, but it was also Jesus that showed her how to do this. And, you know, this has been over 100 years now, and we've seen these trees come and go, and we've seen other people plant new trees, and it, and it works. But people say, why does it work? I don't know why it works. And a lot of folks don't understand why it works, and I'd like to explain to you why it works. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about all the different horizons here. I'm going to name them horizons, even though they're not really, nobody calls them that. But we're going to start with the top. The top says to put rock on there. Underneath it, it's supposed to be, I believe, a mixture of compost, peat moss, leaf mold, topsoil, and phosphate rock. Underneath that, it's supposed to be topsoil. Underneath that, it's supposed to be, uh, uh, actually, I'm sorry, I missed the one layer of compost there. And then we have a mixture of compost, topsoil, leaf mold, phosphate rock down at the bottom as well. We have a main rock that sits underneath the root ball. And then we have more rocks. This is actually, I think the idea was to have a straight layer of rock, but the image doesn't really show that. Then we have a drain tile in the bottom that actually moves moisture with a couple of rocks on the side. So I'm going to start from the very top again, and I'm going to start talking about what is going on here biologically. I'm going to talk about it from a biological aspect. Uh, as well as some of the chemical processes that are here. So we look at the rock at the top. What is rock? Is it just rock? Just something kids throw and do things? Parent material. It is nutrients that are unavailable to biology of any type, except for those that have the ability to excrete acids and enzymes to break those nutrients down. Okay, great. You're putting rocks up there. Now, how do you get to those nutrients? Well, the very next thing is supposed to be leaf mold. Now, mo uh, sorry, leaf uh, uh, mulch, leaf litter, coming from forest or coming from somewhere else. But the thing is, leaves from trees have the perfect nitrogen, uh, uh, carbon to nitrogen ratios. So they will break down at the, exactly the metabolic ratio that, that bacteria is looking for. So that 
right there is going to be the perfect environment for inoculants that are put into a soil. Why? Because they have the perfect carbon to nitrogen ratios to metabolize those, those, those plant tissues. Underneath that is a layer of compost, one inch layer of compost. A one inch layer of compost is soil that has already been metabolized and broken down, which means that you had a lot of bacteria breaking down organic tissues, which would have multiplied uh, 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 their populations until they ran out of substrate, which means that they ran out of food. So they would have consumed that compost pile until they ran out of food. So when you take a compost pile and you put it into your bed, you're inoculating that bed with the microorganisms that break down those plant tissues. So you have the substrate and then you have the inoculant right beneath it. They didn't understand these things back then, but they, we understand some of this now. So you go to the next layer down here, the next horizon. I forgot what that was. Oh, I guess it's, it's topsoil. Topsoil is just like I, I shared with you earlier. It's a mixture of, of parent material, rock minerals that have been broken down with a lot of organic matter. So again, this is usually just good dirt for planting. But in between these two, uh, this being the topsoil, you have a lot of your roots going to the side. You have microbial activity. That microbial activity that was inoculated with the topsoil is going to eat this substrate, those extra, those, uh, 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 what do you call it, exudates that come out of those bacterial organisms are going to excrete acids and other things that are going to weather those rocks. The rain coming from the top is going to move those moisture, that, those nutrients down through those soil profiles. You guys understand? Okay. So it's pretty complex, but it's pretty simple. I mean, it looks difficult, but a lot of folks have tried it, and it works. This rock in the center is the very same thing as I showed yesterday. You've put those inoculants in there. You've got those fungal organisms in there. They're going to start to send hyphae out and start weathering those rocks. But they need to be associated with a plant species. They need to form those, those symbiotic relationships with the roots. So when you put a root there inoculated with fungal organisms, and then you put a rock underneath it, you've got... The fungus, you got the root, and you've got the substrate the fungus is looking for. So you got food for fungus, you got the fungus, and then you also have uh, the nutrients the tree wants. So you got all three things that you need to form the symbiotic relationships right there in that spot. You go down to the next layer, again, more topsoil. Uh, and then you go down with some more rock. So those fungus can go north, it can go south, it can go sideways, and it can also work with the rock that was immediately placed there. Then we go back down to another mixture of, uh, of uh, topsoil with leaf mold. Leaf mold is what? Mold. It's a fungus. But you also have a lot of bacteria in there. Phosphate rock is going to be phosphorus and calcium, as I talked about yesterday. So you're getting the phosphorus that is needed. You're getting the calcium that is needed for root health and for microbial health. And you have the microbes in there that can break that down. You guys got that? They're a great education. You tell me whether or not she was a prophet. The last slide. More depends upon consecrated activity, perseverance, and perseverance than genius, genius and book learning. All the talents and ability given to human agents, if unused, are of little value. Country Living, page 17, page, uh, uh, paragraph 5. It's not always about understanding. Adopt, perfect, adopt good principles, biblical principles, and put them to practice, and you will be successful. There are many kinds of labor adopted. Another quote from uh, Fundamentals of, uh, of uh, Christian Education, page 322. Many kinds of labor adopted to different persons may be devised, but the working of the land will be a special blessing to the worker. 
This, there is a great want of intelligent men to till the soil. Who will be thorough? I shared with you yesterday the importance of adopting science into agricultural work. God is calling for men of intelligence to get involved into agriculture that will go and learn the best ways to do things. Who will be, and, and then take that knowledge and go to the world to all those that are starving, as I shared with you in the beginning, as a, as a mission, the way God did, uh, the way Jesus did when he was on this planet, and how many he fed, so that, th that we may be able to do this work. Who will be a missionary to do this work? And I'm calling those in this room and those who are hearing this recording that we, as Seventh-day Adventists, need to start sending the right folks, men with wisdom, to go and be educated and to get an understanding of how this works so that we may be able to be missionaries in foreign lands and teach people how to feed themselves. Amen. Let us close with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come here today, Lord, and we pray that you would please impress upon the minds of those who you are calling to adopt the work of agriculture, Lord, and to get involved in the ministry of feeding and of healing those Many hungry souls that are in this planet, over half this planet is hungry today, Father. And we should be there when we pray, Lord, that you would raise up the men of wisdom and understanding to go and do this work in all the corners of this uh, world so that we may finish up the, the work that you have called us to do and that we may be able to go to heaven, Lord. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. And we pray asking that you would continue to be with us and that your spirit would abide with us and that you would show mercy to us, Father, and that you would continue to bless us in our efforts as we continue to try to learn how to, the best methods to plant crops, Lord. And we pray asking this in Jesus' heavenly name. Amen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. Oh, yes. Also, um, all my handouts are on, uh, online as well as my PowerPoints. And then uh, I will be at the uh, Session 6, Question and Answers for Soil Science tomorrow if you would like to uh, ask more questions. And also, if you want to ask questions now, you can. I'm sorry. I, didn't ask, I was trying not to answer questions because we weren't supposed to be uh, taking questions during the presentation. Go ahead. Uh, well, Five College Farms is a farm I've been working with on and off for a year and a half now. I just arrived two weeks ago to take over the management, so to be honest... I, I really don't know what to tell you right now. <laughs> we're growing tomatoes and we're growing cucumbers. Uh, we grow them year-round in a greenhouse, uh, and we are certified organic. I can tell you that much right now. Uh, we do have another acre outdoors that I'm scratching my head what to do with. Uh, that is another acre of uh, greenhouses. And then uh, we've got about 30 acres of outdoor production that I've got to get started as well. And I'm looking at doing uh, carrots and uh, leeks and possibly watermelon or other melons out there. But that's what we're looking at right now. Uh, oh, okay. Um, yeah, also for what we're doing, some of the grant work we're doing, if anybody would like to, who has really appreciated and enjoyed the t uh, any of my presentations and would like to uh, be willing to participate in an interview, uh, my friend Rodney in the back over there would love to uh, uh, record you doing an interview if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, okay, uh, another question. Website? Who said website? I'm sorry. Oh, okay, website. The question was, what is the website? Adventist Ag... Dot org. Then you click on conference and then you go down to 2018, about in the middle of the page. You will find my presentations and the presentations of other speakers there. The question is, do I have resources for cover crops? The answer is yes. I will be exposing those resources in tomorrow's presentation on cover crops. Uh-huh. Okay, the question is, will, will silt compact as much as clay and be as hard? Okay, well, all soils will compact. doesn't matter what they are. Uh, we think of clay soils as being compacted because they stick together so well. 
but that's not necessarily what compaction means. What compaction means is that you have compressed your soil and you have uh, reduced your uh, pore space uh, to less than 50%, which is on average, and, and the soils are now stuck together. You're, you're, you're making you know, clay bricks or sand bricks because you can just as easily compact sand as you can clay. And I have seen sand that is very compacted. If you tried plowing a field that, of sand that is compacted, it's tough because those, those particles are so, they're stuck together and they've been compressed. Uh, if you can imagine like making bricks or whatever, uh, you, you can do that. And that usually comes through excessive tillage, um, excessive traffic. I mean, not excessive tillage, but excessive tillage also can cause that. Uh, so yes, another question over there. <laughs> okay, the question. <laughs> the question is, can you improve the uh, cation exchange capacity of a sandy soil by getting bags of clay and spreading it around? First off, you need to make sure you're using the right type of clay because not all clays have good cation exchange capacity. If you're using an illite or a potassium feldspar uh, or uh, some of these other uh, iron and magnesium oxide clays, they have exchange capacities that are tiny, so you're wasting your time. Uh, the soils that are very high, or the clays that are very high in exchange capacity are vermiculite and smectite. And those so soils, all, all the clays that fall into those categories, like Mount Marillonite and Bentonite, uh, they have exchange capacities associated with just the clay of around 200, which is very high. Uh, so if you use that, yes. But that costs a lot of money, and it's a lot of labor. And overall, it's going to be a very, I mean, it's not going to be hardly anything. If you really want to increase your cation exchange capacity, you need to increase your humus. And the way that that works is by increasing organic matter. And then you've got to go back to using proper cover crops and using manures and compost and, and green manures and uh, other things like that where, where you've got a healthy met metabolic processes that are producing humus in your soil, which is going to give you an, an increase in cation exchange capacity. You don't want to, you don't want to exceed 5%. 5%. Uh, see... That's another story, uh, another myth. You, you, the thing is, you don't understand how hard it is to increase organic matter in the soil. Uh, it's very tough. I mean, even to get it to go up 1%. So if, you, if somebody's telling you you don't want more than 5%, that is not necessarily true. But where that comes from is a school of thought that if it's less than 5%, you're in trouble. The question is, wouldn't that depend on what you're growing? And my answer to that, I would say no, not really. Um, uh, I guess there maybe there are a few plant species out there that you would probably want to avoid high organic matter, but I can't really think of any of them off the top of my head. Oh, oh, okay. I see. Your 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 question is: some want more organic matter. Um, I would say yes, but. Again, what you're really going to be experiencing is not that the plant species is specifically looking for organic matter, but that they are heavy feeding crops that want a lot of nutrients that can only be uh, made available through the, you know, micro, uh, through the uh, mineralizing of organic matter. So if you have very low organic matter, then you're going to have a low nutrient release, which means that those crops are not going to have the nutrients they're looking for. So that's really what you're shooting for. They're going after. I saw another hand back there. Well, the fastest way, the question is, what is the fastest way to build organic matter in the soil? And that is one hot, highly debated subject and, and with an awful lot of opinions and a very little science. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, uh, okay, first off, if you're putting oils into the soil. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, what you'll probably see is a lot more plant exudates, which will ultimately lead to better soil aggregation which is just going to glue the soil together and give you better uh, soil characteristics, better porosity, better so soil uh, moisture movement, and, and uh, movement of gases through the soil. Does the glue contain carbon? 
Pretty much, yes. Does the glue contain carbon? And the answer is yes, because it's some type of phenolic compound, which means it's a six, uh, you know, these are sugars that are combined into, you know, it's organic chemistry. It's some type of carbon with something bonded to it. The question is, how do you avoid losing organic matter when you're farming? Well, that's a tough one. Um, with the except, well, how do you avoid it altogether? Well, I shared a little bit about that yesterday, but first thing you got to do, you got to get the environment right for the microbes. Why? Because microbes are going to manipulate their environment to survive. It needs energy to do that. It gets its energy from organic matter. So if the microbes are having to consume more of that organic matter in order to uh, uh, manipulate their environment, then you're going to see a rapid, a, more, uh, a, a higher rate of microbial metabolism, and you're going to see a reduction in those additions of organic matter every year. So that's one way to, uh, to reduce that. Second is uh, through... Uh, erroneous tillage. I always advocate for intelligent tillage, which is something that, is not, that cannot be quickly defined in a few minutes. Uh, so if you're tilling during the times of the year where it's warm or when there's a lot of microbial activity in the soil and you're using uh, methods that uh, introduce a lot of oxygen into the soil, you're going to see a huge uh, a burst in CO2 coming out of those soils, which means you see more microbial metabolism, which means you're pushing your overall percent, uh, organic matter percent down. You're consuming, you're, you're, you're eating, chewing that stuff up. So excessive tillage will, is something you need to avoid, which is why you know, there's the argument of to till or not to till, or the dilemma, I should say, of to till or not to till. And uh, really, my thing is intelligent tillage. Don't till when you really shouldn't be. But to answer that question, it takes another hour or two. <laughs> it's going to take more than a round two. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.